Chapter Eight of Bertram Cope's Year. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Bertram Cope's Year by Henry Blake Fuller. Chapter Eight. Cope undertakes an excursion. Two or three days later, Randolph met Medora Phillips in front of the bank. This was a neat and solemn little edifice opposite the elms and the fountain. It was neighbored by dry goods stores, the offices of renting agencies, and the restaurants where the unfraternized undergraduates took their daily chances. Through its door passed tradesmen's clerks with deposits, and young housewives with babies in preambulators, and students with their small financial problems, and members of the faculty about to cash large or small checks. Mrs. Phillips had come across from the dry-goods store to pick up her monthly sheaf of vouchers. It was the 3rd of October. "'Don't you want to come in for a minute?' she asked Randolph. "'Then you can walk on with me to the stationers. Carolyn tells me that our last batch of invitations reduced us to nothing. How did your dinner go?' Randolph followed her into the cool marble interior. "'Oh, in town, you mean? Quite well, I think.' I'm sure my young man took a good honest appetite with him. I know. We don't do half enough for these poor boys. Yes, he rose to the food, but not to the drinks. I took him, after all, to my club. I innocently suggested cocktails, but no. He declined in a deft but straightforward way. Country principles. Small-town morals. He made me feel like a, well, like a corrupter of youth. You didn't mind, though. Of course you didn't. You liked it. Wasn't it noble? Wasn't it charming? So glad we had nothing but Apollinaris and birch beer. Still, it would have been a pleasure to hear him refuse. The receiving teller gave her her vouchers. She put them in her handbag and somehow got round a preambulator, and the two went out on the street. And how did your show go? she continued. That's about as much as we can call the drama in these days. That, possibly, didn't go quite so well. I took him to a comedy, as they nowadays call their mixture of farce and funniment. Comedy. I wish Meredith could have seen it. Well, he laughed a little, here and there. Obligingly, I might say. But there was no chew in the thing for him, nothing to fill his intellectual maw. He's a serious youngster, after all, exuberant as he seems. I felt him appraising me as a gay old irresponsible. Old? You are not to use that word. Come, don't say that he... that he venerated you. Oh, not at all. During the six hours we were together, train, club, theatre, and train again, he never once called me sir. He never once employed our clumsy, repellent Anglo-Saxon mode of address, Mr. In fact, he never employed any mode of address at all. He got round it quite cleverly, on system, as I soon began to perceive, and not for a moment did he forget that the system was in operation. He used, straight through, a sort of generalized manner. I might have been anywhere between twenty and sixty-five. They were now in front of the stationer's show window, 
and there were few people in the quiet thoroughfare to jostle them. Medora smiled. How clever, how charming, she said, leaving you altogether free to pick your own age. I hope you didn't go beyond thirty-five. You must have been quite charming in your early thirties. That's kind of you, I'm sure, but I don't believe that I was ever charming at any age. I think you've used that word once too often. I was a quiet, studious lad, with nice notions, but possibly something of a prig. I was less charming than correct. The young ladies had the greatest confidence in me. Not one of them was ever afraid. Why, how horrid! How utterly unsatisfactory! Nor their mothers? No and I'm still single, as you've advised, and I'm not sure that the young gentleman cared much more for me. If I had had a little more gimp and verve, I might have equaled the particular young gentleman of whom we have been discoursing, but... His obviously artificial style of speech concealed, as she guessed, some real feeling. Oh, if you insist on disparaging yourself... I was quite as coolly correct as I apprehend him to be, and if I could only have contrived to compass the charming, as well, who knows what? You don't like my word. Is there a better, a more suitable? No, you have the mojoui. He threw a finger through the wide pane of glass. Is that the sort of thing you are after? Those boxes of pale grey are rather good. I never buy from the show window. Come in and help me choose. I love to shop, he said, in a mock ecstasy. With others, he added. I like to follow money in and to contribute taste and experience. Over the stationer's counter, she said, Save Sunday. We are going out to the Sand Hills. Thank you. Very well. Most glad to. Are you going to bring him? Him? Bertram Cope. Why, I've given him six hours within two or three days, and now you're asking me to give him sixteen? Sixteen or more. But you're not giving them to him. You're giving them to all of us. You're giving them to me. The day is likely to be fine and settled, and I'd recommend your catching the 8.30 train. I shall have my full load in the car, and more if I have to take along Helga. Try to reach us by one, or a quarter past. Mrs. Phillips had lately taken on a house among the sand dunes beyond the state line. This singular region had recently acquired so wide a reputation for utter neglect and desolation that, despite its distance from town, whether in miles or in hours, no one could quite afford to ignore it. Picnics, Pageants, encampments, and excursions all united in proclaiming its remoteness, its silence, its vacuity. Along the rim of ragged slopes which put a term to the hundreds of miles of water that spread from the north, people tramped, bathed, canoed, motored, and weekended. Within a few seasons, Duneland had acquired as great a reputation for Praelerisha Dunkelheit for ostentatious obscurity, as ever was enjoyed even by Schiller's Wallenstein. Lovers of nature and friends of the landscape moved through its distant and inaccessible purlieus in squads and cohorts. 
everybody had to spend there at least one Sunday in the summer season. There were enthusiasts whose interest ran from March to November, there were fanatics who insisted on trips thitherward in January, and there were one or two super-fanatics, ranking ahead even of the fishermen and the sand-diggers, who clung to that weird and changing region the whole year through. Medora Phillips' house was several miles beyond the worst of the hurly-burly. There were no tents in sight, even in August, nor was the honk of the motor-horn heard even during the most tumultuous Sundays. The spot was harder to reach than most others along the twenty miles of nicked and ragged brim, which helped enclose the wide blue area of the big water, but was better worth while when you got there. Her little tract lay beyond the more prosaic reaches that were furnished chiefly in the light green of deciduous trees. It was part of a long stretch thickly set for miles with the dark and somber green of pines. Our nature lover had taken, the year before, a neglected and dilapidated old farmhouse, and had made it into what her friends and habitues like to call a bungalow. The house had been put up, in the rustic spirit which ignores all considerations of landscape and outlook, behind a well-treed dune which allowed but the merest glimpse of the lake. However, a walk of six or eight minutes led down to the beach, and in the late afternoon the sun came with grand effect across the gilded water and through the tall pine trunks which bordered the zigzag path. Medora had added a sleeping porch, a dining porch, and a lean-to for the car, and she entertained there through the summer lavishly, even if intermittently and casually. No place in the world like it, she would declare enthusiastically to the yet inexperienced and therefore the still unconverted. The spring arrives weeks ahead of our spring in town, and the fall lingers on for weeks after. Come to our shore, where the fauna and flora of the whole country meet in one. All the wild birds pass in their migrations, and the flowers! Then she would expatiate on the trailing arbutus in April, and the vast sheets of pale blue lupines in early June, and the yellow, sun-like blossoms of the prickly pear in July, and the red glories of painter's brush and bittersweet and sumac in September. No wonder, she would say, that they have to distribute handbills on the excursion trains, asking people to leave the flowers alone. How shocking, Cope had cried, with his resonant laugh, when this phase of the situation was brought to his attention. Are the automobile people any better? Randolph had told him of some of the other drawbacks involved in the excursion. It's a long way to go, even when you pass up the trolley and make a single big bolt by train, and it leads through an industrial region that is mighty unprepossessing, little beauty until almost the end. And even when you get there, it may all seem a slight and simple affair for the time and trouble taken, unless you really like nature. And lastly, he said with a sidelong glance at Cope, you may find yourself, as the day wears on, getting a little too much of my company. Oh, I hope that doesn't mean, returned Cope, with another ingenuous unchaining of his native resonance, that you are afraid of getting a little too much of mine. I'm fond of novelty, and nobody can frighten me. If that's the case, let's get away as early in the day as we can. Breakfasts, of course, are late in every household on Sunday, 
So let's meet at the Maroon and Purple Tavern at 7.30 and make a flying start at 8. Sunday morning came clear and calm and warm to the town, a belated September day or possibly an early intimation of Indian summer, and it promised to be even more delightful in the favored region toward which our friends were journeying. After they had cleared many miles of foundries and railroad crossings and had paralleled for a last half hour a distant succession of sand hills wooded or glistening white they were set down at a small group of farmhouses with a varied walk of five miles before them half a mile through a shaded country lane another half mile along a path that led across low damp ground through thickets of hazel and briar a third half mile over a light soil increasingly sandy beneath oaks and lindens and pines which cloaked the outlines of the slopes ahead and finally a great mound of pure sand that slanted up into a blue sky and made its own horizon we've taken things easy said randolph who had been that way before and i hope we have enough breath left for our job there it lies right in front of us no favor asked here declared cope he gave a sly sidewise glance as if to ask how the other might stand as to leg muscles and wind. Up we go, said Randolph. End of chapter 8 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista